welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at The Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright. And today we've got one Skarsgård worth of a man exuding at least three Skarsgårds worth of joy. <laughs> That's right. Today we are talking about Minute 99, which begins with Fury looking at Colson's cards and ends with Tony blasted back by the Tesseract's barrier energy. Back on the show from a few weeks ago, we have Lachlan Teal from the Quiet on Set podcast. Hello, Lachlan. Hello. Thanks for having me back on here. I'm excited for this one. Finally, some action. Hey, for sure. What was the particular reason that you picked this minute? It was more shame-filled fury, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, very close, actually. I wanted to link these three together, and the one link is uh, bloodied cards. <laughs> oh, yes, we certainly get that, because we're coming in, we're still in the air deck up on the bridge, as Fury is kind of shuffling these bloody cards, he looks at them and says they needed the push as his response to, um, you know, Maria in our last minute revealing that she knew that they had been in his locker, not in his pocket. And that is uh, the moment that we realize as the audience, oh, gross, Fury dipped these in Colson's blood. <laughs> <laughs> It's a uh, it's a mess. It's uh, in his hands again, and uh, funnily enough, there's no blood on his hands. They're quite clean, so he's clearly just well. That's because all of the blood. <laughs> One of the deleted scenes, we see him licking his fingers. So don't worry about that. <laughs> Fury's the worst. It was the worst KFC ad they could ever think of. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> oh, oh man. Uh, it, the line itself is interesting, though. They needed the push. And I, I, I think that that's an interesting angle coming from him. But it does make me wonder if this is really kind of like him finishing the thought that we talked about last time you were with us, Lachlan, about what Phil was saying as he died and that they needed something to believe in, you know, and, and it's almost like. Phil gave Fury this idea. Fury did this with the cards and then used it to push them into action. It's an interesting line. And I, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I don't know if Fury would have come up with all of this on his own as a solution if it wasn't for Phil, you know, kind of saying that as as he was dying. Yeah, um, I'm assuming Phil left a uh, a note in his locker explaining to Fury what he should do with the next steps. He says, dip the cards in my body, then go tell him a lie. <laughs> like, all these steps he's got to follow to, like, bring them together. It's, it's, it's Coulson's, like, long play, man. It's, uh, and, and, it's, and it's working because uh, we see them fly off. It's, it's I mean... Obviously, the discussion happens in previous minutes, and they're not my minutes, so I won't discuss them. I'm only going to discuss about the minute that I can see. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it, he's playing. He's essentially playing a cards game, and it's like one of the first notes I wrote down. Actually, the first note I wrote down was, "What card game do we think Fury would actually be playing?" I'm like, "Magic: The Gathering." Is he a Pokemon player? But I'm assuming <laughs> in the world of the MCU, they've got their own like Marvel turn-based card game that they're all playing, and these are Fury's actual collection in his hands so um but it worked at the end of the day like this is the the wrap-up of colson's death uh and again it's the way i've linked all of these little moments together is that we had the discussion they've settled it's boiled and now we're here and we know that fury's lied but it's pushed them enough to and he said they, they needed the push it's pushed them far enough my favorite thing about that that you just gave me is the image 
that Fury looks down at the cards and he moves the Captain America and he says to Maria Hill, the rest were all Snorlax. <laughs> all, all like covered in blood. <laughs> just, it would have made that moment before so much worse if Such, Captain America yeah. just <laughs> It would have just been Tony flying out. Captain America would have been yeah. like, guys, I quit. I don't know. I couldn't take this guy seriously. <laughs> I'm going back to the ice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Wake me up in another hundred years, guys. Come on. This, 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 this century sucks. Yeah. Right. Uh, oh, this but. is what's come of our future. Seventy years, and you come up with Snorlax. Yeah. <laughs> oh man! Uh, different uh, timeline. Time right. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this does, though, lead me to a conversation I wanted to have about this. Uh, you know, I, as last time you were on. Lachlan, we were talking a little bit about the deleted scenes with uh, Maria Hill and this setup that they had with her character. And so I'm curious, like, the way that this scene plays, and I know we don't have all of that, but I think it's an interesting thing to look at when we watch this scene as Fury's looking at the cars, you know, they needed the push, and we cut to Maria Hill as as she's kind of reacting to him. And I'm wondering, because, I mean, as we know from the deleted scenes, like, she does make this transition over the course of the timeline of the of the, the film plays out in, where she starts kind of, she does start believing in the Avengers initiative and sees that it is something that can actually help. And I wonder if that reaction of her as she looks at him is like perhaps intended to be or would have been the turning point for her to start kind of believing in what he's saying and like starting to buy into some of this. Do you think that there's any of that in that look here? Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred and ten percent. The uh, I said earlier with the previous episode that I, I wish that was in because it would have made this character meatier. Currently, it's just staring off into the distance and and just bringing up a, a couple of uh, conversation points with Fury. But again, it's it's two seconds that we cut to her, and then another two, like one second that we cut to her looking away, and it's just these points could have been extended and then fleshed out but obviously they cut it for time most likely or it just they didn't want to do that stereotypical open at the end and then flashback four days later uh, four days earlier sorry uh yeah traditional sort of uh timeline style but no yeah i again there's certain characters that i wish we can get more of we spoke about wish we had more Natasha in the previous scene, but more and more I am falling in love with Maria Hill and I was hoping that we could get something a little bit more from her. I, I like the idea that this is where she turns a corner and like like she has a maybe pulls out a little notepad and says, hmm, bloody cards. Yeah. Like she's <laughs> writing down fury power moves that she likes. Um, because it is when she turns around and says, yes, sir. Like that feels like the most enthusiastic. Yes, sir. That we've had from her the entire movie. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. It's just, it's so interesting. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot, Pete, over the course of these, uh, the minutes leading up to Minute 99 here about this frustration that we have with the removal of those scenes. Because, I mean, even right at the very beginning, like, we never even find out who she is. She's not named in the film because, 
when they call out her name, it's in those deleted scenes. And so we don't get it for many minutes until that it's finally just, you know, Fury randomly calling out, Hill, I need something. And it's so it's it's so frustrating for and I imagine for Kobe Smolders too to be in this film in a role that's fairly important and it has an interesting character arc to then be completely have that stripped out of the film and to just have the shell of it left where you're just basically kind of this this uh, yes man that follows around and does what's needed and it really kind of ended up diminishing the character in an unfortunate way. Not at all to discount the fact that Kobe Smulders had, you know, because she keeps coming back in other movies, like she's still working, which is awesome. <laughs> it's not like she's she was written out. But man, does it must it have been uh, an interesting watch knowing what you put into the character, knowing what you shot for the film to see the theatrical release and realize how much of it was just neutered. You know, I think that's an interesting position. And for comic book fans who knew the yeah. history of Maria Hill as this character who would kind of take over as leading shield and then have it taken over by someone else. And then she takes it over again. And like there was a much more interesting character already from the comics. And then to have it basically be this person who's just always standing behind Fury. I can imagine that fans of her would be a little upset as well. I wonder if, if in her contract it says, don't worry, in 2025, you get to take over shield. <laughs> <laughs> she signs like an 18 movie contract. Yeah. Just little bit parts until 2025. Yeah. The long game, baby. It's the long yeah. game. Such a long yeah, game. Right, yeah. right. right. Only took Black Widow the same amount of time to get their own solo movie. Uh, <laughs> we don't, uh, we don't, geez, we don't yeah. speak of it. <laughs> so frustrating. Bad. That, really, Bad. that frustrates me to no end. Yeah. Um, now, what does this actually say? What does all of this say, you know, about Fury and the way he approaches situations like this? You know, uh, Pete, we had a, a guest a while back, Matthew Costello, who really kind of, especially for you, burned this into your head about this idea of S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of approaching fascism and kind of the the directional approach that this organization was taking. When Fury is approaching situations with these sorts of methodologies, uh, like, how does that, I mean, does do you feel any different about it now? Do I feel any different about? About the way that Fury is choosing to approach this situation and, like, build this team on this lie. Well, yeah. No, I mean, I don't, I, I, I still feel like uh, Matthew and now Matthew and I are, are right. Like, it feels like this guy has built this entire initiative on lies, subterfuge, because he's a spy, right? Th these are the tools that he has to work with. And, you know, maybe it actually is a greater testament to the fact that he's not a great leader, <laughs> right? Because he can't motivate on anything else but subterfuge and and um, lies, because I don't feel like this is a good way to necessarily build a team. It's an emotional way and a great way to build an audience emotional reaction, but it's not a great like set of role model behaviors for, you know, and when you're when you stop and look at it one minute at a time, he's not a good person. Agreed. That is uh, and, and another deleted scene. You actually see Fury walking out of a leadership convention, and that's why he's not a good leader. He just refuses to do any of that. Uh, he won't do the work. <laughs> he won't do yeah. the work. He's not putting in the work. He's not putting out a good team. Um, I, I, right. Listening to this, this, this whole building it on fashion. It's, it's, I think I might join you in that boat. I completely agree. That is what he's doing. It's not a good way of doing it. 
And I feel like no. Nick is slowly in the background. Obviously, we're coming up to a uh, secret invasion at time of recordings, and there's going to be obviously a massive Fury story coming to that uh, narrative. But uh, in this one, it's kind of like, is he a good guy? Like, I know at his core, he's good. He he wants the best. He wants to keep everybody safe because obviously he's lost the one thing most precious to him, his good eye. His eye. He doesn't yeah. want to lose the second <laughs> eye. <laughs> Right. So he's putting together a team of bodyguards to protect his other slightly worse <laughs> <Yes>. eye. <laughs> the, the, the title doesn't work quite as well. Fury's, bo- <laughs> Fury's eye bodyguards. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, there's a bit, I can't believe I watched this movie, but there's a great line in Ghosted, the latest yep. movie with... <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's a there's a camp. The movie's a cameo parade, but there is one particular actor who comes up with a patch. And he says, "I still have twenty vision," and I die at that joke. I think it's really really funny. So here's Fury with twenty vision. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the poor man. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it, I mean, it's it all is very interesting, and that does lead us to this. I mean, it's a really fantastic shot as we have Fury. We it's a shot of the cards, these bloody cards in his hand, and through the like below them is the is the glass floor, and we see Iron Man come shooting past, and then followed by the Quinjet immediately after with um, Natasha, Clint, and Steve on it, and uh, and of course the the person on the intercom pops in that there's an unauthorized departure from Bay 6. So we know that they are on their way. And um, I, I don't know, I, the, the shot itself is fantastic. And, you know, we were talking last time you were on Lachlan about shot construction. And, like, there are times where putting a shot together like this is, uh, you know, it takes some choreography, especially in the world of visual effects, because we know they're on a set and through this glass is likely just a green screen. And uh, they were kind of putting all this stuff in uh, later. But it's just it's it's a beautifully put together shot that uh, I don't know, I, I like the way that they kind of shift our story because we're really like this is really the end of Act Two now fully moving into Act Three as our our heroes have come together. And now we see them actually departing the broken helicarrier to go pursue the Tesseract in New York City. I, this is one of those shots that makes me actually question the production design to say which came first, the conception of this shot or the reinterpretation of the helicarrier to put the bridge hanging off of the belly of the helicarrier. Because <laughs> it, it is so cool and dynamic to see those things fly underneath the ship that it's almost worth saying, you know what, maybe on the we'll put it on the bottom. That'll be good. And we know we've had we know the bridge is normally on the top, but we're going to put it on the bottom for this shot. That's so good. It's fair. It's fair. I mean, the take the takeoff runway is at the top. So what's happened in this scene is that they've all taken off. Yeah. They've flown around. And they've and flown, flown around back under <laughs> and under. Yeah. No, I, we can't like talk too much about the details because yeah. we know it's yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> Flight pads are a mess on this yeah. thing. Yeah. Oh, just wait. <laughs> just wait. Turn yeah. around. We've we've got to let them know that we're leaving. We we they're going to tell them that there's an unauthorized departure, but they don't know it's us. So we'll fly back around, <laughs> let the smoke trail off, so they can follow us, and we'll go. This is actually part of the process documentation of learning to take off and land on the helicarrier. You always have to approach from the bottom and come back around. <laughs> yeah. Nobody likes it. Nobody's yeah. happy with it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, it's, it's it's actually really funny because we've never seen anyone take off from the bottom. They're always landing on the top. And uh, and Bay 6, it's like, so I, I guess they must have some internal landing ports also. Like when you say a bay, I picture, you know, like, the, I don't know, the Death Star, which doesn't make any sense in context here. Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, there you go. It's actually like a hole in the side of the ship big enough for a Quinjet to fly in and land. And that, that to me, and especially when we saw in our previous minutes, we see uh, Natasha, Clint, and Steve kind of doing the dramatic uh, character walk toward the the Quinjet as they go hop on it. It is inside. It is in a bay. So they're not. So I guess they are coming out of a, a bay somewhere else on the ship. It's just in a ship that's designed to also land in the water. It just doesn't seem like a smart idea to have bays in the side that potentially could open up and you know flood the helicarrier or something. Smart, but, smart design. <laughs> who am I to say? <laughs> Um, but just uh, a dumb country podcaster. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the the other funny thing though is they do fly under it, and in the scope of everything that they've just been dealing with over, I don't know, the last it feels like the last half hour or so, as the Quinjet or as the helicarrier was under attack. There have been so many pieces falling off of the helicarrier <laughs> oh, yeah. because of the explosions and everything. It's like, I just don't think flying under it at this particular point in time is a good idea. I know they fixed it, but it doesn't mean there still aren't loose things that are just going to fall off and hit them. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, I, they have to be over land at this point now, right? Like, no. come on. They've, they're still, you think they're still out over the ocean? Well, they they purposefully put themselves over the ocean to make sure that any falling parts weren't yeah. going to be landing on yeah, people. I remember. So yeah. I, I don't think that they are moving to land. I, I, honestly, I have no idea because they still have to repair it somehow. I just don't even know how they're going to do any of this. I don't know why they just didn't immediately land the ship once a turbine is, is taken out. Like they were already in the water at one point. There's, no, keep it in the sky. Keep it in the sky. Don't, <laughs> don't bring it down. Keep it in the sky. It, they haven't learned anything in the future as well. They're like big, big piece of earth uh, in age of ultron let like bring it up bring it up no keep it in the sky don't bring it back down keep it in the sky they just bring it they, they just don't know what to do with anything right pete i can't believe that it's taken <laughs> to minute 99 we've we're through the entire fight and lachlan is the first person to bring I'm up so the fact that why didn't they just land it back in the water after the engine went out that's right. a good point lachlan yeah i don't know <laughs> I can't believe yeah, that. We've got, we've that got a Hulk running through the ship. Keep it in the sky, man. Just keep it in the sky. Don't bring it down. Don't bring it down. Especially because do. they were fighting so hard. I mean, Andy determined, what was it? It fell in the course of like five seconds, 15,000 feet. Like the thing is falling out of the sky yeah. and all they can do is fight to keep it aloft. This is now, it's ridiculous. Just land it. Well, the reason is, is because the guy that they... Because it's all Marie Hill's fault because she had the pilot shoot the glass out to distract the Hulk. And so now there's a giant That's hole right. in the bottom of the ship. So right. they can't, through in the colorectal they laboratory. Can't, they can't actually land it anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> and the shot wouldn't have been as cool if they were flying underwater and they like, oh, we got to go back under the water so that they can see that we're leaving. Yeah. But then again, no <laughs> one's going to be in the brig because it's underwater now. So it's, it's mm -hmm. yeah, they'll just keep it in the sky. How do they eject? Yeah, they can't even eject the uh, the cell. Like it would just kind of go down, but the water would flood right up immediately, and so it would just kind of be floating there and float back mm -hmm. up to where it left. Yeah, from, right? it just bobs, <laughs> which would be cool and funny, but not so dramatic. Yeah, <laughs> right. no, no. no. Uh, 
Well, we do have everybody kind of taken off. And of course, you know, Fury gets uh, his team into action so that they can get their communications back up. Maria Hill's on that as they are trying to figure out what's going on. Meanwhile, now we cut to the top of Stark Tower and uh, we see what uh, what Eric is busy doing. He has been busy, a busy little bee up here trying to get this uh, get this thing working. And it's, you know, I don't know, it's an interesting machine that he's crafted. And I suppose, as I was looking at this, I went back and kind of compared it to the first one. And I suppose there is definitely an element of you take that one from the beginning, which is horizontal, and you turn it on its side, so it's pointing straight up. It actually looks pretty similar. Um, I just, I, I don't think that the Tesseract was necessarily like in a position where it was kind of floating, suspended in the machine, but it is a pretty interesting design. And, you know, I, I like what they've kind of put together here for this. In the, in the scope of like the machine that the whole third act revolves around. I mean, what do you think? Do you, do you remember liking all of the stuff with the Tesseract and these windows opening up into the sky, Lachlan, when you first saw this movie? It was early days, you know, the, the, the giant portal in the sky was sort of a, a new kind of, well, not new concept, but still sort of uh, not overdone to the point that every single villain now enters through a portal in the sky. Uh, so, it, it, and it's it's cool because it's not like a, 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 a just a normal portal in the sense that a portal can be normal, but it's it's man-made by a, a human with a, a, a powerful device. So it makes it a bit more grounded in the sense that, Humans are making this portal, and they're welcoming in Loki's army. So I, I, I still like the whole Stark Tower portal in the sky. It all brings it back to, to Tony's sort of uh, home base, and there's exciting stuff that goes around. But I don't uh, – again, early days of portal in the sky technology. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, one thing that I do really like, and this, I, I always wonder when it's any character that came from Kenneth Branagh's Thor, when they decide to go Dutch angle, I'm always questioning, are they doing that because they're trying to kind of create those interesting connections with these characters? Because that film was, I mean, Branagh just loved the Dutch angle in that film. And so when we see the Tesseract and then the camera pulls back, the camera goes Dutch to reveal Eric at his computer. And I was just like, that's, it's, it's such a great way to kind of bring him back into all of this, um, using that Dutch angle at that moment. Mm-hmm. I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, New York City geography, though, because um, before this shot of the Tesseract and Eric on the roof, before and after, we actually have shots of Tony flying and trying to figure out the geography of New York and, and where he's coming from and also where the helicarrier is. Um, you know, we were just talking about that uh, moment earlier, like, where is the helicarrier now? Last time we saw it, it was over the south coast of New Jersey, heading out over the ocean as Fury was directing it to, so that pieces weren't falling on people. Now, assuming that they that the Avengers, that Tony, and then I guess the Quinjet, wherever they happen to be at the moment, assuming they're flying in a straight line, that that puts the helicarrier. I think that's begging a lot, well, Andy. I, first of all, I understand that for sure, uh, but that would put the helicarrier off the east coast of Long Island, and Tony is kind of flying east, almost east northeast over Long Island, and he flies between there. There are some smokestacks very prominent in the shot. He flies between a few of those. That's the Ravenswood Generating Station, uh, and then the camera whip pans with him 
clockwise, he flies over the East River. We're actually technically over the East Channel of the East River, right next to Roosevelt Island. And there's a bridge right in front of us. That's the Ed Koch Queensboro Bridge. And he flies and we see Stark Tower in the distance. So now he's kind of flying southeast to it. I don't know. Well, first of all, helicarrier, assuming that they have, um, that they were at the south coast of New Jersey, that means they've moved about 200 hours, 200 miles. I don't know how many hours it's been. I don't know how much time has passed. A little bit. I suppose that's a reasonable amount of time. But now we cut to this other shot of Tony flying into Stark Tower. Now he's coming from a totally different direction suddenly. And I don't know if it's just because they were trying to find some cool angles and cool shots. But now he's kind of over, um, kind of over Long Island, but he's much farther south. And he actually flies in over the United Nations headquarters. And you can actually, I don't know. It's one of those things that I never, ever would have noticed. I've never been to New York City, and I like the geography of it. I know I don't know where anything is, but when I look at all this, I start piecing it all together. And you can actually see the bridge that he flew over moments ago. Now it's in the background uh, to you know much farther north than where he flies in this time. So it's one of these things where, again, I don't know how many people actually notice these sorts of things as they're watching the movie. I certainly never did, but I wonder how many people from New York uh, look and go, wait a minute, didn't he just fly over that bridge and now it's way up north? Like, what is going on here? It's, again, one of those little things. But Yeah, because uh, he flies over the bridge and then back out over New Jersey and back around <laughs> again to get the shot because we know he's a, a player for the shot. He's just did it on the helicarrier. Yeah, exactly same thing. Yeah. He's got a tracker in his suit and Fury's watching him and he's writing words in the sky for Fury to follow him around. That's why he's not going in <laughs> one a direction. Giant arrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, it's just, he's just doing it for cool points, really. He's like, which direction did I come from? But really, he was just checking out his own tower, really. He just wanted to see it from a different angle that he hasn't approached <laughs> from before. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he flew up the first time, but but Eric was so busy that he didn't notice him. And so he's just like, I'm going to have to do this whole approach again. So he flies back out and comes in. And by this time, Eric's done. Because it's so windy, they can't communicate with each other, and his mouth's covered by a mask. So he had to kind of come back <laughs> yeah. with a speaker in his suit, and he had to kind of like say it again so he could be heard. <laughs> uh, it's, that's fantastic. We don't, this is something that doesn't play into this particular minute, um, but Loki is here. He's he's in the building, as we'll find out in coming minutes. He's actually downstairs in Tony's penthouse. And it did make me question, like, where did he park his Quinjet when, when he flew back up here? Or or how did he get here from the Quinjet? And, uh, and why isn't he here? Is there a reason that we think that Loki wouldn't be up here with Eric? Um... He's making a drink a in Tony's bar, and he's just <laughs> he's, been, he's been in isolation and 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 in in you know that little jail cell for so long. He's a bit quenched for thirst, so he, he's just gone to the bar and got himself a bit of a drink. That's all that's going on. But I I I, I do agree. Like, where is the Quinjet? Where is he gone? I but, don't know where the Quinjet is, but we do know Loki is up here. Yeah, right. He's just on the upper level. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, yeah. He's, he's just he's not Loki's here. Busy. He's, he's not here with Eric. And right. I, I don't know. He's I guess not on Eric. My right. question is just like for something that is going on as important as this, does it seem like he would be up here? But maybe he had to go to the bathroom. 
Look. <laughs> oh, Andy. It's, just, it's hard to get out of Do that we have suit. Di- we, don't, we don't have time for anything as pedestrian as bathroom. Please. Sir. He's a god. <laughs> have we ever seen uh, anybody yeah, in the Marvel true. Universe take a bathroom break? <laughs> <laughs> for all we know, there are no bathrooms in New York. In this New York. <laughs> in, this, in this universe. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, we have a brief little line from Jarvis. It's always fun. I, every time I hear these little Jarvis lines, I'm like, I wonder how Paul Bettany, I wonder how long he actually spent in the recording studio for this movie. Like, he yeah, probably like was out hours. in like an hour. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Uh, we talked about uh, Maria not getting uh, a bigger sort of role, but Paul Bettany, man, he, he, he's he gone from the voice to vision. What a what a progression. Yeah. What a lucky guy. He he went from yeah. just his voice to his face on screen. And I got to say, that's like one of the best uh, glow ups you could have from uh, a character in the MCU, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. No. And th- that just also speaks to the incredible luck that they had in casting Paul Bettany from the beginning to be the voice, because it's not like you know, some, you know, actor who had like two credits or something, or was just a voice talent or something. They actually cast a full-on actor to play a pretty, you know, there's not a lot to the stuff that he's doing in those uh, in any of the films up to this point or up to the point that he actually gets to be Vision. So it is interesting that um, that he signed on with... Uh, I don't know at what point they said, you know, we think we might do something more with this down the road. Um, mm-hmm. I guess that's a big question. Um, what do you two think about Eric at this particular point? How he's looking and uh, his uh, his state of mind, let's just say. Oh, I love Eric. He's gone feral. <laughs> <laughs> it's a man who clearly needs a glass of water. Those those lips yeah. are so dry oh. that he's been working nonstop. Uh, yeah. I, I love Stellan Skarsgård like, so much. He could do anything and i'll just be fixated on him in a scene uh but to see him sort of hyper focused and, and to see him manipulated because they're not doing bad things at least in in this eye he's doing good he, he's showing the world a new universe which uh shows how early they were setting up the multiverse so quickly uh, in, <laughs> in the mcu right this is the first moment of a multiverse possibility but um yeah he, he's just it's so windy. I'm surprised that he's staying up there so so well. Well, <laughs> right. I think the thing that I love so much about the character is that it, it, it's so consistent, his love of science at all costs. Like, even when he, like, I don't get the feeling that if you had presented the character with all of the opportunities that come with the Tesseract and opening the universe and all of that, that he would have done anything different had he not been mind controlled right like i i really like he just he is an explorer and i don't i think that transcends you know his perception of good and evil and and that's what i it's one of the things i like so much about it that he probably went overboard with the mind control just say hey look this is a thing you want to open a portal to another universe he says yeah i really do you know yeah, I mean, and it's interesting because his character, and again, we have our whole argument about the end of uh, Thor, where we see him 
potentially mind controlled already or like it seems like he's under Loki's spell. Loki seems to have possessed him in some capacity only to then be mind controlled by him at the start of this film, which is a little confusing. You kind of want him to stop and say, wait, 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 you don't need to do that, man. I'm on board. (laughs) But so all of that aside, though, like the way that he's portrayed at the start of this film before he before Loki uh, taps him with the scepter and takes over his mind, there is this side of Eric where he's always talking about the Tesseract as a she and she's misbehaving and I don't know what she's doing and this whole place is unstable. Like, yeah. it's it's interesting that he's looking at it in that way. And again, right here, she can't stop now. She wants to show us something like his mind. I don't I, I think that the mind control definitely is an element that has kind of cracked him a little bit, but I really think spending so much time with the Tesseract is really showing and like he's, he's um, personified it as this this entity that is like trying to open doors for him. And I don't know, I, I find it to be so interesting that this is really kind of the one character that we have in the film that's a human who spends time with the space stone long enough where it really starts kind of like um, breaking him down. And I don't know, I think that's interesting. I think there's the mind control side of it, but I think this connection that he has with the Tesseract and how it's going to be opening his mind. I mean, we even saw it in the in Loki's underground bunker you know where he's you know super excited about like oh it's going to show us all this great stuff like he really is kind of i don't know i i I love it and and to your point lachlan stellan skarsgård is just great at playing this kind of possessed broken man I, i love the way that that he's delivering it here would you have like alternate timeline with his character right because i could definitely see him not being you know, manipulated and brainwashed. I, I feel like if you, if I could just change one little thing with his character is that he wasn't making any progress on the Tesseract. And then Loki doesn't mind control him, but just says, let me give you the tools. And he's the only one under Loki's umbrella that's not brainwashed, but doing it out of his own free will to, to unlock this power. And then, you know, you could have done the whole, he did it for a good. He was going to turn on Loki, but he ends up opening this portal. And I, I could I could see that where he's just fixated on making this thing work, but he's not actually under the mind control. He's actually doing it because he wants to crack this little box. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what's so interesting about Eric. And I think that would make it an even more interesting character to see him you know, whether it's science or the Tesseract or what, but not mind control, something that is pushing him so hard to, like, pursue this and make it happen. I, it just, I think it would make such an interesting character beat for him. And my only sense of them not wanting to do that is because they knew we want Crazy Eric to be in uh, Thor of the Dark World. Crazy Eric. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I guess. I, I, I feel like it makes the, I feel like going through the mind, I, the more we've talked about it, the more I come down on the fact that it feels like mind control is the easiest solution. Sure. And, yeah. and counter to best use of character. Like it's, it's just easy. Yeah. Just like time travel can be just easy, right? <laughs> Multi-universes can just make things easy. Easy. You know? Tahiti can bring back Coulson. Like it's just an easy way yeah. to to satisfy a plot need, and that's that can be frustrating. I suppose to a certain extent, there's an element of, you know, when we're talking about this movie in particular in this franchise, it's very much four quadrant movie. They're trying to make something that really does appeal to a very broad audience. And you don't want to make 
your character is too complex. It might be too much for you know, for young kids or whoever it is, you know, for them to kind of do that and to make these characters that are a little darker and more complex. And and yeah, I wonder if that's an element that they really think about in in not wanting to go there with some of these characters, but go those easy routes. Yeah, right. Which right. You know, uh, for better or for worse, that's what they're doing, right? So Tony flies up, has this very brief conversation with uh, with Eric, who is showing that, no, uh, she can't stop now. And, and as Jarvis says, like, the arc reactor is already off. It's self-sustaining. It's doing what it needs to. Again, a convenience, but it is it is what it is. Uh, and this is where Tony decides to, uh, I don't know, take matters into his own hands. I'm not exactly sure, but he blasts it. And I'm just thinking, okay, uh, you know, Tony is also a scientist and this is one of those rash decisions that he makes that I'm like, does it make sense for him to do this uh, knowing that he's a scientist? And and I, I don't know. I was just as I think about this. I'm like, it doesn't seem like the most logical thing for a, a fellow scientist to do. Does it play? I, I don't know. There's only one thing that would make more sense, and that's Thor trying to hit it with his hammer. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> All for science. All for science. <laughs> that's right. It's a, it's a shoot first, ask question leaders mentality that both of these people have. They, uh, they, they refuse to, to take the easy route of, how about we just try turning it off? Nope. There's a computer there that controls it. Nope. Let's just, uh, let's just shoot it. Shoot it. See what happens. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, oh, well. Um, to your point, though, Pete, yes, we do have this. There's a deleted scene that doesn't really fit in anywhere. It's incredibly brief. I don't know where it would have gone in the film. Not here, but I decided we're just going to talk about it here because it takes place in the same location. Eric is still passed out on the roof, or unconscious, I should say, on the roof. And uh, Tony is gone. This is this point where Thor decides He's going to come up here. He checks on Eric, which is nice to see. And then, as Pete said, he tries to hit the Tesseract with the hammer, uh, with Mjolnir, to stop it. And it also blasts um, his stunt person back. Um, so, <laughs> it's, I don't know. Lachlan, what do you think of this little deleted scene here? Uh, I think it's better than the original scene. I feel like we should forget about Tony. Uh, there's nothing better than a man smacking a hammer on an invisible shield. Uh, it's uh, so good. Yeah. Uh, That's I, it. Like, I can see why they got rid of it. I can see why. There's uh, there's no reason for this to be included. There's they, They're just pushing the same point that they did with Tony trying to break it. There's It's Mjolnir. Maybe it could have broken the, the invisible force field. But yeah, it's uh, it's good laughs. It's good laughs. Yeah, and I guess that's about what we have with it. So I think the bigger question is, why the hell did they include this as a deleted scene that was released anywhere ever? Like, it's five seconds long, it's stupid and deeply unfinished, and it doesn't add any new context to the film. The only thing I could think of is trying to give us a little bit more of what what has Thor been up to in his time of from the time that he um, has uh, you know left the fields of uh, the uh, you know off the shore of New Jersey to the time that he gets here and actually jumps into the fray um, this is just a, a character beat that they're showing us I don't know it really it just is an unsatisfying uh, deleted scene and it, you know as you said Lachlan it definitely it's it, I'm glad that it's not in the film yeah 
Uh, last little bit here, after Tony blasts the uh, the Tesseract and is thrown back by it when the blast hits him, uh, we do see a reaction shot of Pershing Square. This is the restaurant down at the base of Grand Central's uh, terminal, down at the bottom of Stark Tower. And if you look hard enough, you can see our waitress. She is there busy working. Um, again, she we will be giving her more time soon as we talk about her. She certainly is going to be in deleted scenes, and she's going to be um, briefly in the film. So we'll talk about her a little bit more um, once she gets uh, a little more screen time. But that's pretty much it for this minute. Any last thoughts from either of you about anything with Minute 99 uh, before we crack the century mark tomorrow? Uh, I don't know. I just find myself really missing Loki. I wonder what he's up to. I, I've i just got to ask what uh, Eric is wearing because if Tony got blasted back from that far away and Eric is right next to that force field and gets slammed against the wall, he's got to have some sort of like suit of armor on underneath his uh, clothes because <laughs> that man is made of steel if he survived that kind of blast that close. You know what I, in terms of, again, if we're just fixing things, I think the thing that would have really leveled up uh, Skarsgård's performance is making him go full Walter White, like episode <laughs> one Breaking Bad, and just hang out on the rooftop in only his underwear. That is, that's what I, that's what I wish. Um, and now I can't unsee it. That was a deleted scene. Yeah, that's right. But they decided to include Thor. <laughs> We get even more of him in Thor: The Dark World when he's running around stark naked at, uh, at yeah. Stonehenge. So <laughs> yes, I, right. Oh, I totally forgotten. I don't think he would have had a problem. I've forgotten a lot of that movie. Problem if his clothes had been completely disintegrated. <laughs> it is really funny though. Like if you look at the moment when when Iron Man's blast hits that tesseract, like the ball of energy around the the tesseract device. Uh, you know, Stellan is just standing there, and they you know, CG'd him, like, just getting thrown to the side, which is great. And it only lasts for frames, but it's kind of funny to watch as he just kind of, like, it's a, it's a pretty big hit that he <laughs> yeah. takes. You can see why he goes unconscious when he hits the side of the building there. Yeah. Ah, uh, well, good stuff. Well, Lachlan, it has been a fantastic time talking with you today. Um, I don't think, I think we have you back one more time right toward the end of the movie i think we're we're looking at yes. um, minute 121 with you so yes um yeah should be a fun time talking about that uh, but tell everybody for now uh one more time about your podcast and what you're up to out there on the internet uh i do the quiet on set podcast uh where we talk about pretty much any movie coming out uh recently at least uh, that's out in cinemas we'll be heading to the Cannes film festival very soon to cover all of that there uh, but I do a lot of my reviews on Letterboxd as well. So if uh, you are on the Letterboxd platform, which is an exclusively secret club that no one knows about uh, on the internet unless you're in the in crowd, uh, you can join me on there to see sometimes some thorough reviews or also just one-liners that just summarize a film. Fantastic. We will have links for the podcast and... Um all of his socials, all of Lachlan's socials. We'll have them in our show notes. So check those out, everybody. Um, and remember, if you're not seeing the uh, show notes in your podcatcher, just go to our website, marvelmovieminute.com, and you can click on everything there. You can also learn about our own a membership program where you can get early access to shows that are ad-free and uh, some hiatus episodes, all that good stuff. So, well, Lachlan, thank you again so much for joining us today. Andy, Pete, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. And Pete, that's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow for Minute 100. 
the Big 100. Can you uh, believe it, Andy? Tomorrow, Minute 100, and we're going back to the car wash. Back to the car wash. Uh, should be a fun one. Until next time, True Believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. 